In today's episode of Phone Calls with Clever People, we're talking all about bias, more specifically gender bias. In her newly released book, Beat Gender Bias, How to Play a Better Part in a More Inclusive World, today's guest, Dr. Karen Morley, describes biases kind of like a sticky floor, making it hard for women to rise to the top. But the good news for us is that the change to gender balance can be accelerated if we know more about how bias works. So that's what we're gonna do. I thought I should give her a call so we can find out all about it. Hi everyone and welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. My name's Shane Hatton, I'm a speaker, author and mentor from Melbourne, Australia and I'm passionate about all things leadership and communication. I realized recently that I know some really clever people in my network and I thought it would be a fun idea to be able to take some of their cleverness and share it with the rest of the world. Now through the wonders of technology, I'm broadcasting my phone calls with clever people just for you. And really the premise is quite simple. I just wanna be able to ask great questions of talented people to help us all become more effective leaders. Joining me on the phone today is the author of a brilliant new book, Beat Gender Bias, How to Play a Better Part in a More Inclusive World, Dr. Karen Morley. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Shane. It's great to be here. There's usually three quick questions that I ask people to kick us off, some fast facts to get us started. So to kick us off, why don't we start with, where did you grow up? Uh, in Adelaide. In Adelaide, South in Australia. Yeah. And your first job? Uh, my first school holiday job was making milkshakes in the corner store. Right. And and tell me a little bit about, tell people a little bit about what you're doing now. Um, at the moment, I'm running my own uh, coaching and leadership development practice. So I do one-on-one coaching. I do coaching circles for teams. Um, and I also provide uh, consulting to organizations on bias, in particular gender bias. Mm. So I guess I wanted to, I guess, start the conversation or get the conversation rolling by talking about the idea of un- unconscious bias. You talk a bit about unconscious, well, quite a lot on unconscious bias. Um, Why do you think this is so important? I think it's really important because it changes the conversation. We've been having a conversation about equality and gender for many, many years. um, And there is a perception that progress is quite slow. When we started to talk about unconscious bias and unconscious gender bias, that seems to open up this new world for us to explore. And I think the the critical thing for me is that we are making decisions, we don't know we're making them, and they contradict what we know we believe. Mm. And that's really complicated, but it's also quite intriguing. And I think it's a much more positive frame to put around what's happening. It gives us a lot more opportunity to kind of do things that might change that. You know, if 75% of the population, men and women, have unconscious associations that are the very traditional associations, women are warm and soft and caring and kind and supportive, and men are dominant and directive and they're the leaders, if we've got them sitting beneath the surface and they are coming out through our decisions, but we don't believe that that's okay, we can do something about that. 
Mm. Yeah. Do you think that's a part of it? Do you think there is that that sense that people genuinely want to do good and to have this kind of, I, I guess, um, there's an internal driver of wanting to do good, but being potentially unaware that they're, um, they do have some of these biases? Absolutely. I think, and that's why I think there's so much opportunity here. If we run the conversation in the right sort of way, uh, coming from curiosity, um, I think there are uh, most people in our society would say that equality is a pretty good thing. Mm. They, if not a very good thing, um, you know, fathers will say about their daughters that they want the best for them. Um, and they expect them to do well. And if they want to put their effort into, you know, university degrees or careers or whatever it might be, then they should be able to do that. Mm. Um, and the the challenge is that just believing that and just wanting that isn't enough because we've got these really sticky, unconscious beliefs that are interfering with our decisions. Yeah, I love that that thought or that metaphor that you use that you describe um, some of the gender bias like a sticky floor. Um, do you want to kind of unpack that a little bit of what, what that means? Uh, well, it, it's just what I think. We often talk about the glass ceiling um, and this idea that women are, you know, kind of stuck against a glass ceiling. And I think a lot of us know what that feels like. Um, but in fact, there's also this sticky floor. So even from the age of three, the research shows that the way parents, I don't want to blame parents for this, um, but the way parents interact with boys and girl children is very different. So the gender bias and the expectations around what girls are meant to be like and what boys are meant to be like start at very early ages. So that's the kind of sticky floor and getting off that, actually getting yourself out of those beliefs when they've become ingrained, they've become unconscious, they're just happening in our brains without us knowing it. That's very difficult to actually step out of that and, and be something different and think something different about yourself and about the people around you. Mm. So it's, a start, it's starting from a really early age and then it's it's almost becoming deeply embedded into society. So we see it in um, leadership, we see it in organisations um, and in many ways some organisations aren't really at a level playing field or, or aren't fair. Why, why aren't organisations fair? Why isn't Because it seems like everyone wants to do good. I think part of the reason is a lack of awareness of the unconscious uh, decision-making biases, of which there are many, but but um, if people aren't aware of them and they don't know how they work, then they'll make decisions and they'll make them with uh, really good intentions. Mm. Um, but it doesn't mean that they won't be impacted by bias. I mean, I get leaders to think about things that are very mundane and tiny. So how much time do you actually, for male and female leaders, how much time do you spend with the men who report to you and the women who report to you? How much of the conversation do you have focused on your career? Um, how much of the conversation do you focus around stretch, you know, mm. and, and giving people some challenge? Um, and the research shows that men and women get different amounts of time spent on them and there's a different amount of time devoted to their careers. So at a, at a quite fundamental level and just an everyday level, there's a bias in how we're actually priming women to have leadership careers. 
Mm. Um, and at the organisational level, I think a lot of organisations over the last, say, five or six years have paid attention to strategies and policies about um, diversity and inclusion and in, including gender diversity and inclusion. But, it, it, again, they're very well-intentioned, but they don't necessarily counteract those biases that are there. So organisations, to be fair, need to do a much more detailed analysis, need to help people to become more aware of the unconscious biases um, and how they play out and, and give their leaders some training in what to do about it. You know, mm. and, and leaders you know, need to be aware of affinity bias. So we are all more comfortable relating to people who are like us. Uh, and, the you know, the good old Aussie barbecue um, is one of those great demonstrations of that. The women will congregate together, the men will congregate together. And so when that comes to what leaders do and, uh, again, how they engage um, at work, they're potentially spending more time with people like them. Uh, mm, and women who are not point. like the leaders, you know, find it really difficult. You know, you can't be what you can't see. Um, yeah. That's oh, the that's outcome of that bias, right? So if I can't, if I'm a young woman and I can't see uh, female engineers or I can't see women in leadership in my organisation, I actually discount that as a possibility. And here's the kicker. I might discount it consciously. I might be aware of my discounting and I might not be. Mm. Even on that same thought, I mean, I was having a conversation with someone a few years ago and they were discussing this idea of unconscious bias and they had a slide. I was helping them with their presentation. And the first slide was essentially a picture of a whole bunch of people. Uh, one of them was Mickey Mouse. Four of them were your traditional Albert Einstein lookalikes. And then there was a Miss Universe contestant. And she asked the question to the audience. She said, which of these people are the nuclear physicist? And, of course, your natural tendency is to go towards a person that looks like Albert Einstein. And she said, well, mm. that's actually the Miss Universe contestant. And she said, mm. it just illustrates the idea that we have so many deeply embedded unconscious biases about what certain people look like. And I think what you touched on, you can't be what you can't see, which is if we don't see people that are doing what we want to do, that it's really hard to have the role models and to aspire to or to be like um, if we don't see those people. And so, I mean, you talked a little bit about there about, like, training, some of the unconscious bias training. I, he I hear it gets a bit of a bad rap. And and so, like, how do you train this or, you know, should we avoid that training or what's what's the right way to go about changing some of this? Yeah. Um, there has been uh, quite a lot of discussion about unconscious bias training and how it, it backfires. And the reality is it can. There's not a lot of research so much about that and training. But one of the things that's really clear is that if you take someone, uh, usually they'll have conscious bias as well. They might not. Um, and you, you tell them that their attitudes are wrong. Mm. You shouldn't believe this about men and women and about um, roles or expectations. Then what often happens is that people suppress um, their bias and it comes out actually in more biased decisions. There's some interesting research on sexual harassment training which shows that when it's compliance-based, which is a really bad thing for this sort of stuff, mm. when it's compliance-based, people come into that training, men come in feeling like, oh, you think I'm a harasser, mm. which is a very uncomfortable um, experience. 
or women come in thinking, oh, you think I'm a victim? What if I'm a victim? So people have got these uh, multiple messages going on in their, their, their heads while this training um, is underway. And what happens is that something like 25% of people come out of such training more likely to harass. Wow. So this is the suppression effect. Um, and what we're trying to do, look, we know that changing our habits is very difficult, right? right? We, what's even harder than that is changing our attitudes. Mm. And if somebody else is trying to change our attitudes, well, that's even worse. So the, the idea with unconscious bias training, if what we're trying to do is to make people believe particular things, to have particular attitudes, to stop having certain attitudes, and that's the focus of the training, then we are fairly likely um, to experience it backfiring. Mm. People are going to suppress those beliefs. They'll pretend they don't have them. Um, I know I need to show up here. I'm not allowed to say what I really believe. Um, and that's even more problematic. Mm. On the other hand, if I, I think we do need to understand unconscious bias and how it plays out because we don't now. And it's interfering with our decisions. And one of the great things that I've seen in the work that I've done is where people understand that they've got these um, beliefs that sit underneath the surface or where they're open to thinking that might be the case. Mm. What that inspires is a sense of wanting to be congruent. So I go back to what I said earlier, we're making decisions that we don't even know we're making about things we don't believe in or that contradict what we believe in. That's incongruent, isn't it? Mm. We don't like to feel that we're doing things. I don't want to be making decisions that actually fly in the face. I do it. You know, I have those gender associations. So every now and again, I come across myself doing something in a particular way or stepping in to help out or feeling like I shouldn't um, or making, you know, judgments that seem to be based on those traditional associations and I don't agree with them. Mm. I love that idea that you can, there's this internal desire to want to do good, but because of some of the unconscious biases, we can almost be living a life that feels misaligned or incongruent. And mm. the when you kind of raise the awareness of something that's unconscious, we all of a sudden show up fully in who we want to be. So it seems to me that when you shine a spotlight on the things we don't know or that we're, we're kind of unaware of, we actually get better and we show up more authentically and um, more fully in who we are. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it in fact, is very motivating. Hmm. And I guess one of the things that's really tricky here is that, um, and people know about unconscious bias and sort of talk about it, but the question is what do you do next? Mm. You know, how do you make these changes? And so what I think you can do when you're doing unconscious bias uh, training or awareness is to really focus around that um, potential for incongruence um, and then give people suggestions and ideas about, you know, how might you experiment with that 
Um, what can you notice? How do you watch out for that? Mm. Taking a growth mindset is really critical. And in fact, that was one of my, I guess, my my big um, rediscoveries partway through last year when I was doing this work. And I was about to work with um, an executive team of mostly men to talk about diversity. And there was a fair bit of resistance in the group. And the CEO had said, we want to kind of move past that. He had a particular um, strategy in mind. He really wanted to focus the organisation meaningfully around um, gender inclusion and inclusion more broadly, but there were some quite resistant people. And so I thought, what am I going to do in these conversations? And so I went into them with a growth mindset around what I could learn. Mm. How could I have a conversation with these people that was going to be a positive conversation for them that was actually going to create a sense of movement in, you know, helping them perhaps loosen up around their position and be curious? Um, And what I did was, you know, if you want to influence people to change what you need to do, you need to understand what's important for them. And so in the conversations, I kind of forgot about, in a sense, or put aside this idea that the CEO wasn't happy with them, that they needed to be kind of showing different uh, behaviour and focused instead around where were they coming from, what was important for them, what were their experiences around diversity. And some of the conversations were just amazing Mm. because people volunteered in the conversation experiences that had working in diverse teams on diverse projects and by having them raise and explore their own experience, we were able to then, well, what if we could do that here? Mm. I, I, I love any any mindset where you approach it through the lens of curiosity, right? And I mean, your first yes. book was Lead Like a Coach and, and that, again, like part of, I guess, um, part of your key message in, in, in what you do is helping people approach different kind of topics, I guess, through the lens of curiosity and what can we learn mm. from this and what can we grow through this. Um, if you're needing to talk to somebody about um, potentially their unconscious bias, it can be a sensitive topic. People tend to respond in different ways when we talk about this. What are, what are some mm. of the, the best ways for someone to be able to have a conversation with someone about potentially some of their unconscious bias that they can't see? Yeah. Um I uh, have a set of ground rules um, that are laid out in the book um, for conversations and contentious conversations, and it applies to any conversation that's going to be a bit difficult, I think. But um, the first of those is curiosity. Mm. So we've talked about that. So if I engage through um, a curious um, attitude, then, you know, my brain's in a particular um, uh, mode and, um, you know, that produces some dopamine. So I go into the conversation feeling positive. I think that's actually huge mm. because instead of um, thinking, oh, no, this is going to be a hard conversation or I'm not going to know what to say, get into just a curious attitude. Mm. The, the next is uh, candor. So one of the things about attitudes is that we have our own attitudes and beliefs and they're ours and we have reasons for them and sometimes we can explain what they are, but they are ours and we need to have the opportunity to defend them, to say what they are without any kickback. So one of the things I think is really important is that people can say what they think. Mm. 
they need to be able to say that they have a different set of beliefs from yours. Uh, we need to be able to have the conversation about what does this mean and what does it look like and I don't think the same as you. If we can do that and be candid, I think that's really important. It avoids the suppression, which is one of the the, the downsides of talking about unconscious bias. Mm. And the other is um, confidence, uh, confidentiality really, mm. so keeping confidences. So if people share things with you about their attitudes and beliefs, they need to know that they're not going to be held against them in the future. So there's a bit of you know psychological safety being set up here. Mm. So if you're curious, ask questions, um, don't uh, prejudge. Um, if you allow people to say what they really think and mean and feel, um, and you do too, that's great. And if that's a private conversation, even better. Mm. Do you think that the idea, and I know I've been guilty of this in the past, but kind of going in and wanting to proselytise and, you know, I know all this stuff about bias and <laughs> what you need to believe, you know, that doesn't always It usually work, doesn't does get a, best, a good response. <laughs> I love, I, I've just finished reading um, The Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates, which is just a fantastic book as well. And she has this great expression where she says, you've got to remember people's cups are not empty in the sense that they've already yeah. filled up their cup with so much and you can't just pour in more unless you've already taken time to understand what's already in a person's cup, which is why I love your idea of just yeah. approach through the lens of curiosity. What's in there? Why is it in there? And, and, and have creating that safe space that's non-judgmental. Um, what's the role in men in all of this? And obviously I'm, I'm aware in the conversation that we're having, I, I sit in a place that's quite privileged in, in terms of um, growing up as a man and having nowhere near the kind of experiences that, that many of the women in my world have had. What can men do to um, be more of a support around gender equality? Yeah, I, I don't think we can get to equality without men. I mean, gender is male and female and everything in between. Um, so it is absolutely critical that men are a part of um, this whole process, uh, getting gender equality. And as much as it means opening up opportunities um, uh, for women to, to get into leadership, it also means opening up opportunities for men to do different things as well. Um, men don't necessarily fit into or want to fit into, you know, the corporate uh, competitive contesting sort of male domain anyway. So, you know, there are as many men or as many ways of thinking about um, maleness as there are men, same as women. Um, and so I think that having conversations about what men can do and what they can explore and how they can do that um, is really um, important. The Male Champions of Change movement has been really fundamental in helping senior men in organisations have very different conversations um, and think differently about what their role is to be outspoken, to be champions about the value of diversity and inclusion. And when they do that, because of their powerful and privileged roles in organisations as well as society, people are more likely to listen to them and to be persuaded by them. So messages from men actually carry, can carry a greater weight because in a sense they're seen as having less at stake whereas women can be seen as wanting to argue for, for more resources and opportunities for themselves so it can be seen sometimes to be self-serving in that way. I don't agree with that but that is 
one of the responses. Um, whereas men, when they advocate, um, appear to be advocating in a, in a broader and more open way. Mm. The other thing I think that men um, can do is to be aware of their privilege. Um, and privilege is a funny thing. When, when we're told we have privilege, our first response is to kind of diminish it and mm. to deny it. But if we um, look at our own privilege and think about the background we've had, I mean, I grew up in Adelaide, but I had a very safe, comfortable um, upbringing. And it's only in more recent years that I can see just how privileged that kind of boring suburban uh, childhood was. It was immensely privileging. Um, So thinking about what are the privileges you've had, it actually, again, changes one of those little um, things in your brain um, and makes you hear and be more compassionate about the experiences that other ha- others have that might not be so privileged as yours. Mm, I, I think that's such great advice. And part of, part of um, I guess, being um, aware of some of our biases is, is, is understanding what's already, in, I guess, in our cup and understanding what we've been able to experience and what we've had. I, I really like that idea of, of using of using your voice. And I think um, it's a good conversation to be having. And I think there tends to be um, a very mixed response when you bring it up. And I think it comes back to the start of our conversation where you were saying, we don't often don't like hearing things about ourselves that make us feel like we're um, our intent wasn't good. But what you're saying is that actually, I think our intent's good, but what gets in the way of that is this unconscious bias, which causes us to live misaligned with potentially what our real intent is. Um, yeah. which I just love is a really great way of looking at it. Um, as we kind of wrap this up, is there any kind of one big piece of advice? I know this is a long conversation and it's a good conversation to be having, but is there anything in the short term that we can be doing right now and any practical kind of wisdom that you can leave people with? I think one of the things that is most fundamental is that we need to be aware when there might be some bias happening. Um, and so that is just paying attention to yourself. Um, and being a bit reflective of what am I noticing in this conversation or this meeting that's going on, but what am I not noticing? Mm, if I looked at it this differently, what might I see? And so I think the noticing and awareness of bias or the potential for bias is obviously the first point. If we don't notice that we can't do something about it, if we do notice it, we can then say to ourselves, okay, well, what might I do here? What's the question I can ask? Um, again, being curious to myself, but perhaps being curious to the group about what are we doing here? Are we hearing everybody's voices? What have we missed? What would somebody who was you know, from this demographic or from this organisation actually say right now about what's happening here? Oh, that's, a, that's I mean, it's, it's such a fantastic piece of advice. And I want to say a huge thank you just for taking some time out of your morning to, to have this conversation. It's a conversation, honestly, could, we could talk about for the next hour. Um, I couldn't recommend your book enough. I got it on, on Kindle last night, Beat Gender Bias, How to Play a Better Partner, More Inclusive World. Um, it's out in bookstores everywhere at the moment. Um, you can get it online anywhere else people can find it. Yeah, on my website, karenmorley.com.au. Fantastic. And I would encourage everyone on LinkedIn to reach out, connect with you. Um, you post yeah. incredible content and um, this, this in, in any way um, support the people who are on here and uh, helping us get this message out into the world. And so big thank you, Dr. Karen Morley, for your time. Thank you so much, Shane. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.